Focus on Life. It's Sunday, it's 8pm, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Jeff Lucas and this is Lucas on Life. Fear. It's an emotion that can stalk us all. And let's face it, life can be terrifying. Without mentioning that COVID word, oops, I just did, there's so much going on. Plenty of fuel to rob us of a good night's sleep. Worries about the stock market, nervousness about military build-up in Ukraine, anxiety about electricity prices, and a recent report that shows concern about huge increases in mental health issues among children. Being afraid, it just seems to be part of life. We fear life. We fear death. We fear what is. We fear what is not. And we fear what might possibly be. Fear pushes us around, makes us freeze when we should flee, roughly shoves us into panic when calm reflection would be so much better. We're frightened of what we know, and we're terrified that there are awful factors behind everyday life that we just don't know. Fear. We're afraid of intimacy, rejection, heights and clowns. We fear failing. We fear spiders. And because of fear, nations will go to war, stock markets will tumble, businesses will collapse. Neighbours will despise the people next door, convinced that they're a menace. In the book Life of Pi by Yann Martel, the statement is made, fear, it is life's only true opponent. But Jesus spoke endlessly about fear. He gave a total of 125 commands, and 21 of them were about fear. Compare that with eight commands that we love God and love our neighbour. There are 365 commands that we not be afraid in Scripture. One commentator says, one for every day of the year. I don't have a quick fix for fear, but in sharing a couple of stories with you tonight, I pray that our hearts will be strengthened and encouraged, not least because we are not alone. The God of wonders is with us. We're talking fear. It was 1.20 a.m., and that was when my cell phone rang loudly, a shrill ringtone, one that I selected in a moment of madness. It pierced laser-like through the thick layers of my deep sleep. I woke up with a start, heart pounding, eyes suddenly wide. Within a second, even before I got out of the bed, my mind sprung into adrenaline-laced action, speculating wildly. Whatever had happened? Most of my friends don't phone me in the small hours for a happy little chat, which is one reason why they're still called my friends. I couldn't find the phone, which continued shrieking impatiently. In the darkness, I bumped into a rather solid piece of furniture and uttered a word of praise and thanksgiving. I wish, as I bruised myself. As I stumbled around the shadowy room at 534 miles an hour, or so it seemed, my mind was way ahead of me, travelling at warp factor speed, hurtling through a horrifying catalogue of possible reasons for the call. Maybe someone in our family has been in an accident, is terribly injured, is stranded in Latvia, is lying on a cold mortuary slab, awaiting my identification. Fear creates endless chilling possibilities. At last, I located the phone and I heard an unfamiliar voice. But the voice that is all too familiar to most of us is the niggling whisper of fear. We know it all too well. We're intimidated by its hiss. Fear can speed through our minds at a rate faster than any Wi-Fi connection. Ignited and fueled by imagination, fear is devastatingly effective at night. It mugs our exhausted minds and insists that we stay wide awake, restlessly fretting 
while the hands of the alarm clock crawl around the dial, silently tormenting us as we long for the dawn to break. It punctuates our dreams with horror stories that drench us in cold sweat. We awake relieved, hoping it was just a dream and not a premonition. Being afraid is something we humans do very well. Perhaps that's why in scripture, visiting angels usually introduce themselves with the same greeting, don't be afraid. Surely God knows that when it comes to fear, even the most faithful and faith-filled among us can fall prey to its predatory fangs. Elijah did rather well as a person of faith, performing an assortment of exploits like summoning fire from heaven, organizing the weather, and raising the dead. Most of us haven't raised the dead lately, and no, waking your teenage son in the morning doesn't count. But this man Elijah, so famous for his faith, in fact ran for his life and then prayed for death when fear stalked him. A notelet from the Cruella de Ville of the Old Testament, Jezebel, sent him and his faith packing. It was fear that took him out, a devastating smart missile. And so these days, I'm trying to take seriously God's often issued command, do not be afraid. Don't do that, he says. Now, if I'm told not to do something, I must have the ability, with God's help, to not go there, to refuse fear's invitations. I'm wrong to cower powerless before the Goliath that is fear. I might only have a makeshift catapult and a few stones in hand, but by God, literally, I can topple that giant. And this is more than don't worry, be happy. I need to learn to replace my anxious thoughts with urgent volleys of prayer. According to Jesus, worry produces nothing. Prayer changes everything. I can place vivid imaginings of dread under arrest, taking my thoughts captive. Is it easy? No. Trust takes practice and discipline. But just because it's easier said than done doesn't mean it can't be done. So what became of my nocturnal phone caller? It turns out that an airline, having recently mislaid my bag on a trip, decided to return it in the middle of the night. A nice delivery chap tells me that he has my bag and that he's just 10 minutes away, stifling a scream I gently advise him that it's the middle of the night and it's actually an empty bag. I have no immediate need of it, but he is determined. He calls me three more times for directions and finally, at 2am, he arrived. I have a blissful reunion with my bag and treat it like a returning prodigal. I'd missed it so much. I thank him warmly. He was just doing his job. But as I wandered back to bed, I realized that my fears, so vivid and terrifying just a minute or two ago, were quite groundless. They usually are. Odd things happen when people are baptized by full immersion. I know one minister who wore fisherman's waders so that he wouldn't have to change clothing for the event. The waders leaked, and he became one waterlogged pastor, which was awkward. Another hapless, besuited leader delegated the actual baptizing to one of his team but popped back onto the platform to provide a benediction at the end of the service and then stepped back into the tank. Oh dear. My own baptism was something of a fiasco. Baptismal candidates were expected to share a testimony prior to the dunking, so I decided to write and perform a song. A huge mistake. Singing a duet with a friend, we tortured the fixed grin congregation with our awful verses. Then, 
When I was submerged, I kicked my legs up in the air, sending a miniature tidal wave towards the elderly ladies on the front pew. But my most recent baptismal experience was epically aquatic. Visiting the Holy Land during one of our annual tours, there were 32 members of our group who wanted to be baptised in the River Jordan. The site is allegedly the place where Jesus was baptised by John. We're not precious about these things on our tours. We don't offer see-where-Moses-had-a-cappuccino excursions. Nevertheless, being baptised in the same vicinity as Jesus is special, and as it turns out, challenging. At the baptismal site, the River Jordan is about 10 metres wide at most, and the border between Israel and the nation of Jordan is a rope right in the centre of the river. On each bank, Jordanian and Israeli border guards usually stand, machine guns in hand, a warm and comforting sight. All was going really well until our friend Jerry waded into the water. My wife Kay and I gulped. Jerry is a tall chap and the river current was strong, so baptising him might take a little extra effort. We meant to ease him back into the water slowly, carefully, but in his enthusiasm, he threw himself backwards, emigrating in the process. For a moment, his head was in the nation of Jordan, his nether regions in Israel. The guards moved closer. This could cause an international incident. I didn't immediately see the guards because I was totally underwater, thrown off balance by his sudden backflip. Flailing around, I surfaced to witness our compassionate group laughing hysterically at the sight of our mass immersion. Now, why did this happen? Well, it's simple. Kay and I had not planted our feet firmly on the riverbed, and thus we were vulnerable. We were not standing securely. Staying still, just standing, for most people, doesn't seem very exciting. The activist mantra mocks the apparent inactivity with a call to perpetual motion. Don't just stand there, do something. But sometimes staying in one place is all we're called to do because there's just nothing else to be done. We've come to an impassable junction. We've tried all the usual things. We've prayed, consulted, worked and planned. We've even exhausted a few useless options too, like fretting and worrying. And now we're facing a concrete wall of our own limitations and all we can do is stop and trust. The coronavirus pandemic has taught us something about how this happened. We've all experienced the rigours of the coronavirus pandemic, and during that time, we've often used the phrase, we don't know what on earth is going on, because we didn't know what on earth was going on. People were, and are still, sick and dying all around the globe. The world's economies have been struggling to fight against this dreaded plague. When we don't know the why, and we're not sure about the what, what we can do is pray. Instead of launching into fear, we wait, reflect, calm our hearts, hold our nerves. In short, stand firm. We're also called to stand firm when spiritual warfare rages. Writing to some battle-weary believers in Ephesus, Paul encouraged them to clothe themselves not with leaky waders, but with the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, stand. You can read about it in Ephesians 6.13. When we're tempted to be afraid, let's remind ourselves that we have assurance about what is true. 
It was the Apostle Paul again who told those endlessly wobbly souls in Corinth, famous for their doctrinal vacillations, to hold tightly to the truth that Christ is raised from the dead. Because of that wondrous Easter dawning, death is dead to us too. So, here's a few words of advice for all of us. Let's not be swayed. Let's hold tightly to what we believe. Let's not be intimidated or swept away by uncertainty. And if you're planning a baptism in a river, keep your balance. As we've been talking about fear tonight, I'd like us just to consider our self-talk. You know, that conversation that goes on inside our heads. The late, great Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. Now, what's all that about? We might think that talking to ourselves is weird, but actually, when we look at the Psalms, many of which were written by people in life-threatening and terrifying situations, we learn that sometimes people gave themselves a good talking to. In Psalm 42 and 43, the question, Why are you downcast, O my soul?, is repeated five times. Zoom in with me on one verse in Psalm 42, verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. It was Paul again who said in 2 Corinthians, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Perhaps there are some thought patterns, some self-talk that we need to review, and some thoughts that we just need to close the door on. And it might be that you'd like to talk and pray with someone about fear. The Premier Lifeline is open from 9am till midnight every day. 0300 111 That's 0300 111 God bless you and see you next time. Lucas on Life.